Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. This is Vernita Howard, the founder of Breaking the Silence on Domestic Violence. We are coming today to bring awareness on domestic violence and other subjects such as depression, suicide, mental health issues, and much, much more. We have um, so many people joining us today to help us bring awareness. So I'm going to do a brief and let each one of them introduce themselves. And then we're going to get right into this roundtable. We're bringing our roundtable to your table to bring awareness. Talisha, can you tell the people just a little bit about who you are? Uh, um, You're my me. name is Talisha. My name is Talisha Solis, and I'm a um, survivor of domestic violence of seven years. Um, I'm originally from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Big family of six kids, and um, also. Um, just uh, by day, I'm just a dental assistant and working at the dental office. But my passion is for domestic violence because I actually came out of a situation of seven years. And now I'm a life coach trying to help women to and men to start over after domestic violence. Um, so uh, I thank you for allowing me to join this panel today just to bring awareness to domestic violence and starting over. All right. Miss Sheila. Give us an insight on who you are. Hi, my name is Sheila. Um, I'm a domestic violence survivor. I've been uh, free for six years. I live in Indiana. Um, by day, I work for Gannett Publishing USA Today. And um, I volunteer with several organizations. And my passion is helping survivors realize that there's a life after domestic violence. So you got to stop surviving and start thriving. And I appreciate what you do, Vernetta. And I look forward to sharing some information with everybody today. Thank you. I guess somebody's sharing it to their page. What happened to who did you call next? We're waiting on to see can you know who you are? Mr. Hennett. Oh, I'm so sorry. I did not hear you. I apologize. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is C D Hennett, Apple Liberty Effect. I'm a domestic violence author and advocate. I'm an advocate in the city of Durham. I'm also the advocate for uh, mental illness, homelessness, and human trafficking. Um, and I'm honored to be here today. Awesome. Miss Shalina, can you tell the people who you are? 
than some of them able to speak. Introduce yourself. My name is Angela Dudley. I am a survivor of domestic violence. Um, and I want to be able to make single moms aware of how to be protective of their children after losing a child to domestic violence. And so that they'll know the signs when the abuse may start so that they can get out. For whatever reason, it kicked me out. Can everyone hear me now? I can hear you. Okay, guys. So for whatever reason, it's trying to kick me out. So go ahead, panel. I'm trying to make sure I have everyone Okay, I do think that I have everyone in now. 
for whatever reason, they tried to kick me out. So you guys for being patient. Um, so we're going to get right into our round table. Um, as you all know, most of you know, I am a strong advocate for domestic violence because I am a survivor. So with that being said, um, we're going to go ahead and get this started. So Mr. Hannett, can you tell us what domestic violence is? Um, sure. I I would classify domestic violence as a pur purposeful um, intent to uh, mentally, physically, verbally um, abuse someone. With the uh, intent for control, okay, in a relationship. Yes, so they classify as intimate partner um, abuse. So we want um, we want everyone to know. Abby. Okay, you're in CC. So um, intimate abuse. So when people hear it, you know they don't think that it's something completely different. So. Um, most of us have survived um, a form of abuse. And so there are different forms of abuse um, other than the physical and sexual. So Ms. Sheila, can you give us some other forms of abuse? I mean, financial abuse um, and control, uh, alienation. You know, if you're with someone that's trying to keep you away from your family and friends, and the people that are important to stability in your life, that's a form of abuse. Right. So most people have domestic violence, they only think of the physical abuse um, or someone who has been sexually assaulted. And a lot of times people don't realize that even in a marriage, sexual assault happens when no exactly what it means. So, um, and we have to be careful who we have our children around as well when we are in relationship. Um, signs are there. Will someone care to elaborate when we see signs? Do we ignore them or? Um, why are oftentimes the signs ignored? And anyone can take this question. I think a lot of times the signs are ignored because um, it pleases people to do so. A lot of people don't want to get involved in between um, what, what, uh, what's going on because they also have a fear of their own protection. And a lot of times until the person being abused is ready to deal with it, they can also become just as aggressive as the one who's being abusive to them. Exactly. Um, a lot of times we hear um, that's their problem, that's their business. Abuse is just that abuse. So how do we um, how do we as a group um, bring awareness to it's not just their business, it's our business deal. Miss Talisha, can you elaborate? Yes, 
I think that, you know, more people, you know, should be involved. I know in my particular situation, you know, people kind of saw the abuse. Um, they saw him, you know, being real emotionally abusive in front of them and shut me down. And they kind of knew what was going on, but their, their state of mind was we're not involved or we don't want to get involved between somebody's marriage. But when you see someone in, in harm way or the kids, you know, going through, I think it's, as a society, we should take more responsibility to to step up because you don't know who life you can save by opening up your mouth and saying something. I know a lot of people around me, and I'm just speaking for my story, is, you know, as a survivor of seven years, you know, I knew people knew on the outside that I was going through. Um, they saw how he was, but um, they took the stand of not being involved. So I think that we should step up. I think People don't want to get involved because they don't want to be blamed if something happens. Um, they don't think it's their responsibility, but we do need to know that we, it takes a village, you know, and if you see things going on, you should make people aware of it um, for the safety of the children as well, not just the, the victim of domestic violence. Exactly. So we do have some comments that I'm going over and give you to elaborate on it. Miss um, mm -hmm. Latoya said that people ignore signs because they are wrapped up in their emotions of love out of fear and hope of change. Um, for me as well, Miss Talisha, I know people seen and they knew what was going on and that is often true. Um, statistics say it takes seven what is it? It takes seven times to actually leave your abuser. And even after losing a child, I went back to my abuser. Um, I pray for change. Um, a lot of people will say, well, you know, pray about it. So what happens when you pray about it and you go back and there still is not change? Well, and everybody like know I'm very spiritual, you know. Um, I love, I love God. But what happens? when you don't pray to this and you go back and it continues to happen um what is the most annoying about to say something um, i think one of the most annoying things is when somebody says, when somebody says pray it away um, or just pray about it because um, even in the Bible, it speaks, it says that faith without works is dead. So you have to pray about it and make moves to improve it. I think whenever somebody says just pray about it, that is very dismissive. And it's also to make them feel safer than saying, you know what, let, let's talk about a game plan for you to leave this situation. I think one of the most annoying things, again, is to say, Prayer is a mighty thing, but you have to actually have actions behind it. Exactly. Um, the Bible do say um, faith without works is dead. Mr. Hannon, do you want to yeah. elaborate on that from a minute? Well, I just want to piggyback off of that, too, and say that as a, when, we're, when we're talking about domestic violence and how it's a whole community, that the church our church community and people that say pray about it as a church community, we shouldn't just leave it at that because that's a way to pacify the, 
the person that's coming to you for help. You're just trying to pacify them by saying, you know, you know, gotta work it out, gotta, uh, you know, pray about it, gotta come to you and tell you the best way behind it. But whenever someone comes to you about domestic violence, this is a life and death situation, and it should it should be thought of that way. That this is something that someone that's in our community is coming to you saying that they need help, and it's it's in that it's in that urgency that it is life and death. Because she could turn around and walk out that church the next day or walk away from that person that, that told you to pray about it and die the next day or be killed the next day at the hands of her at the hands of their abuser. So whenever, whenever, whenever someone says that, it's just a way to pacify you. There should be a plan. And a lot of leaders don't have a plan that's in place for whenever someone comes to you and say that, because they always preach around some same, some same subjects that that they always talk about, which is women should be submissive to, you know, their husbands, you know, they try to keep you in a marriage and it shouldn't be about keeping you in a marriage. It should be about keeping you alive. Amen. Exactly. And I want to say, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times they say submissive. And so I've had situations where we're in the middle of a, a rescue and they said, well, my pastor said I need to be submissive. Well, what is submissive to you? And where is submissive in the Bible? The Bible says you should submit to your husband. But if you go farther, it also say that a man should love, um, love his wife the way God, God loves the church. Right. That don't say to beat her, you know, um, not, you, you know, it don't say that. And so that's where it's important as advocates, you know, in whatever um, setting your around you so they can understand. I had a hard time leaving because I remember going through spiritual counseling and my marriage counseling and I was told, you know, I should submit to my husband. I should do this for my husband. I should do that. Well, what should he do for me? You know, not only did I go through the physical, but since we spoke on the spiritual abuse, you know, I had to often make choices whether I was going to be with him at church. You know, but he had a right to go do whatever he wanted to do. And so um, even with me being a minister, it's important that when, you know, I'm counseling a young female um, that's, you know, thinking about being married or, you know, um, that they truly understand. And one thing that I did learn after going out being trained to read things for myself because I was just caught up on what that pastor said and I didn't read it myself. What he said to me, I took it to heart and the way I took being um, submissive or submitting to him was doing what he told me to do. And a lot of times that's where we are. Um, but we see um, so much going on in our communities. And in our communities, we're told in our household. So can you elaborate on that? I just want to 
pipe in. And I know that in my church that I was in, in North Carolina, when I was in the midst of getting out of In our communities, we're told what stays, what goes on in our household stays in My church in North Carolina was, my pastor was kind of um, the opposite. He, um, my church was very supportive of me getting out of the marriage. And my pastor was, and his wife, my whole church was very, even though it was a Baptist church and divorce is kind of frowned on. um, I have to give kudos to my pastor and his wife. Um, They were very supportive in the whole church of me getting out of the marriage. So although most Baptist churches frown on divorce, um, in that circumstances, because they knew of the domestic violence and the situation I was in, my church supported me getting a divorce and getting out. So I think it depends on, I mean, if you're in a church where they're telling you you're in a domestic violence situation, I say find a new church <laughs> because that's that's not good advice. And I don't think God <laughs> means for us to stay in a marriage where your husband's beating on you. <clears throat> that's why I just want to throw that out there. I want to say, too, that whenever the church is telling victims you need to stay with your spouse, you they don't look at it like this, but they are legitimately killing us. The church is killing us every time they tell us to stay with our spouse and make us feel bad for doing so. Because when you go to church or when I think of church or, or whatever, you know, my religious preference, I think of warmth and, and love and understanding. If you're telling me. If, if I then tell, come to you and tell you my spouse is abusing me and you pull up a scripture to make me feel bad, how is it that you're not aiding in my death or my pain? And, and so I think that that needs to be addressed as well. Um, I remember when I spoke one time, said the black church is killing us because we go for help and they'll instead tell us that we need to stay in a situation which we don't belong in. I'll say this too, is that some churches, some some churches and some religions, let me put it like this, some religions don't support divorce. Um, they don't support divorce as far as a husband Mr. and a wife uh, uh, breaking up or separating. And it's it literally is, it literally is death, death do you part, meaning that you have to die within that because they don't support, you know, divorce. I know, uh, being friends with some Catholics, uh, that they a lot of times their their church or their parish didn't support divorce. So it was it was you know you would actually have to leave that community because you're you are bound to that marriage and being in that uh, in that parish. So they wouldn't support you being in the, being uh, divorced. So you would actually st- still have to leave that that church, and that's the kind of miss. Uh, um, when we talk about stuff as far as domestic violence, we have to think about that kind of uh, perversion as far as, you know, what the word says and what church says and what the Bible says is that, you know, that there is that you can leave, that you can leave, that the word doesn't want, that God didn't want you to be in an unhealthy relationship. He talks about in the Bible about healthy relationships and an abusive relationship is an unhealthy relationship. Agree, Mr. Hannon. A unhealthy relationship 
you need to go. Um, so let me ask, um, I know this wasn't one of the questions, but what do you do if you notice that um, one of your children is going through an abusive relationship and you're talking to them, you know, trying to direct them the correct way of what to do. And it seems like everything you're doing and everything you're saying, they're not listening. But as being an advocate, you know, you know, the say you see the manipulation, you see, um, you see it all. What steps do you take as an advocate? Do you step in daddy mode, mommy mode, or do you step in advocate mode? Um, just by instinct. Both. Uh, instinct. I think God, I haven't had that happen yet. Um, but on instinct, I step into daddy mode first, which is protector. Um, right. Then, then I have to ease back into advocate mode, which is thinking of of an of educating someone uh, on what could happen, and then I have to take it a further into what's the plan on getting you out of the situation? So on instinct, you know, you as a parent, you always go into your first, your parenting mode first before anything. And then as an advocate, you always have to step into that. You have to ease your way into that because the, the, the parent part, your children may buck against the parent part. Um, as an advocate, it may, like I said, you have to step into the education part and you have to step into that as far as educating them on how bad the situation is. And then once you educate them on how bad the situation is, now let's think of a plan on how to get you out of this situation. I completely agree, agree with uh, Mr. Hennett because what you don't want to do is become a parent that's overbearing with them. I know for me, I tend to, or tended to do the opposite of what you wanted me to do, even when it was going to be to my own detriment. So for me, I think I would try my, outside of being a parent, of course, I think I would try to be an advocate to let them know, you know what, I understand how hard it can be. I understand how much you love this person. And I would remind them it's nothing wrong with loving this person because it's a natural thing. But this person doesn't love you exactly the same way, healthy way that you love them. I think it's hard if it's one of your children, but I think that if you already have had that conversation, um, for instance, with my kids, they know my, my background. And so for, for me, when I talk to them, um, if it ever happens, I feel like they'll know, you know what? Um, my mom went through this and let me talk to her because I know she's not judgmental. I think if you set the boundaries there and let them know that you have an open door policy, it could really help your kids talk to you. And I and I, I have to agree with both of you. Yeah. I think for me, I probably, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to stop. I'm going to step first into mommy mode um, just by instinct. And then I'm going to have to draw back. I mean, I kind of had that with one of my children. And my first instinct was the instant mommy. I'm a big mama bear. And um, I had to draw back a little bit and realize that my, you know, I had to talk to them like someone. They had to talk to me and try to reason with them and, and let them know that, you it's you know, again, it's all right to love someone. But when they don't love you back in the right way, it's, you know, beating your head against the wall is going to do nothing but give you a headache. And um, and then reiterate to them, it's OK to cry. It's it's OK to be to have pain over this person, but you have to work through it. And um, I watched my child cycle like I cycled. 
love them, hate them, um, want them back, you know, try to fix things. And it was painful to watch him go through that. Um, it wasn't as bad as mine. So they got through it a little bit faster. Um, but it was still, it was hard. You know, I wanted to go in and, and swoop them up and fix everything for them. But I had to step back and let them, you know, let them go through it. They went through it a lot faster. They didn't go back as many times as I did. Um, and they got through it faster and they came through it in, in a better place than in a lot quicker than I did because of what they watched me go through. But um, yeah, no, my first, my first reaction was mama, not advocate. It was definitely mama first. And as a parent, you know, I have, I haven't been through it yet, but I do have teenagers. And so, you know, my kids were too young to really remember what I've been through, but I do, as they get older, I started talking to them about relationships and abuse, what I've been through, just being very honest and open as a mother, first of all. Um, I know advocacy comes in next because, you know, you want to help other people, but it's just a natural instinct to want to be that mother first, just to let them know, you know, I don't want you to take the same road that I took. You know, it's okay, like they said, to be, to love someone, but to be abused and mistreated is unacceptable. You know, just treat, teaching them about self-esteem mm -hmm. and how, you know, being candid and letting them know that you were in a bad place where you allow this to happen in your life and you really don't want them to go through the same thing. So I think it's natural to be a parent first and just to be open and keep the lines of communication open. Let them know it's okay to love somebody, but it's not okay to be hurt by somebody. I haven't had the privilege of having to go through any of that I with totally my agree. children because I have tender age kids. Because I, I have tender age kids, so, but I know I would have to be in mommy mode well, first well, before actually being an advocate. And for me, I've seen it, um, honestly, guys, as an advocate, you know, my children, um, my children suffered. And so a lot of times we don't want to talk about our children suffer um, when we go through domestic violence. And if they see um, violence in the home, um, it has an effect on your children. Um, people don't want to talk about it. They they want to keep everything swept up under the rug. But with me, I am pretty much an open book. Um, went through it for about 10 years. So my children seen it for 10 years. And even when I got the courage to walk out, you know, um, I found myself in several abusive relationships it to that type of relationship. And so um, I see my children, the effect that domestic on your children. I had one that would have seizures uncontrollably when I would speak to her father because we couldn't hold a sensible conversation. Um, the other one suffered with asthma, you know, I'm having asthmatic situations to happen when I will hold a conversation with him. And I know uh, Mr. Hannah has written a book called The Ripple Effect that talks about, you know, different things like that. 
Mr. Hannon, can you elaborate just a little on what children, like the effects domestic violence also have on our children? Well, some of the things that you talked, that you experienced in your relationship that you just brought up, you know, are some of the effects of it. You know, I go to, you know, thinking about the, 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 the mental aspect of it, that, you know, your children might develop, you know, anxieties, um, they might have PTSD. Um, they, uh, um, they in turn may have a bad relationship on their own. They have a, a, a that seeing a domestic violence, uh, being in a domestic violence home, that kind of relationship seems familiar to you. So as a child, you may get that same kind of man or that same kind of relationship um, as a, uh, and you may participate in, the, let me see, how can I say this? You may have that type of relationship uh, growing. Um, when we see domestic violence, with, with children. Uh, in my book, I talk about the, the fastest growing um, population for domestic violence is 16 to 24. And so what we see in that is that we see with um, things like early childhood pregnancies, um, teenage moms or teenage dads. Um, then when you have teenage pregnancies, you also have to look at the fact that they may not graduate from high school, um, uh, you know, having to uh, the likelihood of someone that had a baby in high school of them graduating, it, it goes down. So when we see them not graduating from high school, we also find them having uh, less income. So it puts them on poverty and a poverty level. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but you are, but I talked about this before is that a domestic violence relationship is a generational curse. You being involved in it also means that your children may be involved in it because it looks familiar to them. It looks familiar. It looks, it looks like something they've seen before. So the same abusive parent that you have, you may look to as a husband or a boyfriend or even as a, as a wife or a girlfriend. So I talk about things like that. I talk about how if, um, if a, a teenager sees it, like I said, I talk about the, the, the mental aspect of it. And we, we never think about how our, our children sees our relationship or how they may interpret our relationship. Um, they may need therapy just to, so they can just come to, come to grips of what they've seen. It's traumatizing. Renita, you're, um, you're muted. Y'all, my screen done everything but unmute me. But would anybody else care to elaborate? Yeah, I actually would. Um, 
just to hear me, uh, your points, like I grew up in an abusive household, and so I saw my parents um, fight, and, and then I was abused by them. And so my story's a little different. Like I, I became an aggressor in my first uh, long-term relationship, and my kids saw that. And even in this uh, marriage I'm in now, uh, me and my husband used to fight all the time to the point, like Mr. Hennis said, our kids were traumatized, especially our older two were traumatized by it. That even now, it's been so long since we've had that issue, but even now, if me and him are playing around and um, laughing and joking and I scream out loud, like at one point in time, my kids were even were knocking on the door to make sure I was okay or everything was okay. Um, now they are in therapy, thank goodness, to work that on out. Because again, it is a generational curse and I definitely want to break it. Even if I started off participating in it, I definitely want to break it and I want to break it with myself. I want to be the last one in it. But um, you do have to think about your children. And when you're in that moment, for me, when I'm in that moment of violence, I don't care about anything else but putting my fist in your face. And so um, I had to get myself help to realize why I was still this way at such an um, uh, uh, older age than when I first endured the abuse from my parents. And that definitely helped me to um, to change my ways and how I looked at things. That's also why I'm also a huge advocate for therapy because without it, it, it it's a, a lot of work that you have to do on your own and it is very hard to manage. Yeah, I mean, I was just like, Cece, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things to talk about. Go ahead. <laughs> one of the things I want to talk about is um, after domestic violence, how does it affect your mental health? Um, I know. Uh, I'm sorry, is somebody else going? Because I know I'm talking a whole lot. Uh, well, I, I just want to say, you know, for me, I mean, it sent me into a very dark place. You know, I was depressed for a long time due to, you know, starting over. And with my situation, you know, I had three kids raising three children, you know, and I was in a very bad place mentally. Um, I really had to seek help on it because it's important for us to know that we're not alone, that somebody, you know, you can get help and you can get therapy. Um, I went from, you know, a two-parent household to now um, got three children. One of them was a, a baby at the time who was actually the one that was physically abused. And, and so I went through that where I was dealing with trying to be strong for my children, you know, so I was, you know, crying constantly, trying to, you know, get out of this depression I was in because, you know, now you're by yourself. You're raising kids and, you know, you just don't know where to turn and mentally can take a strong hold of your mind, you know, mm -hmm. and for, by prayer and by therapy, you know, you have to know that it's okay because a lot of times we're taught to just pray your way through, but you're not taught that it's therapy and help out there for you whenever you go through these situations and that it takes a long time to, to, to get out of that state once you um, have been in an abusive relationship for a period of time. And so mentally, as a parent, you got to be there for your children to let them, you know, know it's okay and you got to be there for them. But you have to be there for yourself as well, because if you're stuck in a situation where you're not taking, 
you're not able to take care of your kids because you're depressed and you're down. And I remember being in my room and sleeping for days and days and not coming out and, you know, trying to figure out a way to take care of my children. You really need to seek help and therapy because it's very important. And for me, therapy was like the best thing ever. Um, like you said, I went through depression. Um, there were times that for no apparent reason, I was just crying. Um, whenever someone was, I would hear screaming, yelling, you know, different things of that. It tore like a part of me up. And for me, the... The scars that nobody could see hurt more than the scars that everybody could see, you know? And so um, I had therapy. I had, I had all of that. I needed that. For two years, um, I was shut down um, every Christmas because that's when my son was beat out of me. Um, and I, I delivered my son on December the 23rd. So every year for 21 years, I would shut down for Christmas. It was not a happy place at all. Um, I would do whatever I needed to do and um, to be okay enough for my daughters, but I didn't want to be around other people. Um, but once I start getting therapy, um, my therapist was like, talk about I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to relive it. You know, we have this thing that if we talk about it, you know, um, you're reliving it, you know, and um, it's going to just send me into a darker space. Well, through advocacy, I've learned that talking about it has been a form of healing for me and to encourage others um, to seek help, um, you know, it's nothing wrong with seeking help. Going to the churches and finding that because, you know, um, prayers work. But as before, um, you know, you, you have something. And for me, that doing something was actually getting out, talking to somebody else that one, not going to judge me or victim or make me feel that I already, you know. Um, and honestly, a lot of times when people pray, pray at moment, I didn't want to pray. You know, um, I didn't have that strength to encourage myself through it. I needed somebody else to be that voice, to be that push for me. And a lot of times, you know, people don't understand that. Um, I had like a complex about myself because I felt like I wasn't pretty enough because of all the stuff that has happened. Or, um, oh, your abuser, I tell you so many different things. You ain't this, you're not going to, nobody's going to want children. You, you know, so... And once I start going to my therapist and, you know, um, she was building me up and oftentimes to get her now and say, I'm so proud of you. Look at your voice. 
you know, helping somebody else. And um, that right there is who would have known two years being quiet to going on six years being a voice for others? Who would have known that my voice would make a difference? Who would have known that my story would help somebody else? And Darice Wright, I have an awesome support team. I had a support team then, but I didn't want to use them because I was ashamed of what I was going through. So now to have the support that I have now is a major difference. So my question to you all is, if you went through any form of abuse, did you use your support system or did you push them to the side? And then did you seek therapy? And if you did, did it help you? I had a support, um, I had a support system, but I didn't like I didn't talk to anybody about mm -hmm. my abuse for 21 years. I was silent and I didn't talk about it. Um my way of coping with my abuse was sleeping with guys or whatever versus being able to talk to someone because I didn't feel like anyone would want to listen to me. And so I just, I, I dealt with it in my own way. And even though I went to church and being a pretty girl in church, nobody knew the pain that I was feeling. My family didn't even know the pain that I was feeling. So sometimes you can cope in a different way versus some people use therapy and everything. But like y'all said, sometimes they'll tell you to pray about it and you praying about it. Sometimes that you don't really want to hear the word pray. You just want someone to encourage you to tell you that you are a better person and that you're worthy of love and things like that. I guess I got kind of lucky in a sense um, that last day when I was taken by ambulance and then was put in protective custody in a domestic violence shelter, they forced me to go to therapy every day. And I kind of fought against it the first couple of days because I didn't want to hear any of that mess. I mean, I didn't want to talk to the lady. Um, but after a few days, I realized that talking to her, even though I sat and cried the majority of the time, that it did help me. And when finally the trial was over and I left the state of North Carolina and I relocated, I started talking with other domestic violence survivors and I sought out groups. I went to a domestic violence survivors retreat and was there with 48 other women that were just like me. And that was like a pivotal moment for me that I realized that I wasn't alone and that there was really nothing wrong with me that all the emotions and everything that I had was normal. And um, from there, it was a game changer for me. So mm -hmm. therapy was huge for me. And I highly recommend anybody that's a survivor, male, male or female, seek out therapy and um, like-minded people that understand that all the emotions that you have, the, because just because you leave, and even in my case, you know, he was sent to prison. Just because he was hauled off in shackles doesn't mean at that very moment that I stopped caring about that person or stopped loving him because I didn't. And I felt like there was something wrong with me because I should have hated him. I mean, I mean, he tried to kill me. I mean, you, you should hate that person. 
and I didn't right away. So I felt that there was something wrong with me and there was never anything wrong with me. There was something wrong with him. I mean, I was in um, a, I, you know, domestic violence situation where um, while I was in it, I did have the support that I would need if I just reached out, you know, between church and family, you know, I'm sure I had that support system there, but the shame of the abuse and wanting to put on a mask every Sunday as I went to church and sang and came home and sang, and we were both in church, but I was being abused at home as well. And I just didn't want anybody to see me in a different light. So I kind of hid behind the church and smiling and singing and just doing stuff inside the church to try to hide it. Um, and it took, it took my son up to my soul when he broke both of his arms and his leg to, to free me from the situation. It almost, like she said, it took me having to go through a situation where my baby was almost killed and uh, um, he was arrested for child abuse in order for me to come out of it. Um, after I was in that depression, I do, you know, I did help and get the counseling that I needed, but in doing it, it was just a shame of being in it and not wanting people to know. Putting on a smile in front of people, putting on a mask every Sunday to try to mask, you know, what was really going on. And, um, but I do in getting help and seeking help. Um, and a lot of the church members were surprised when they when I came out and now it's in the paper and he's arrested and my child is, you know, in the hospital and they finding out that way um, just because I wanted to put on a face. But, you know, you got to know that you don't have to wait till it get to that point that you can seek help and have that support before it get to the point where your child is, is almost killed. And, you know, and it's not about showing face, but it's about getting the help that you deserve because you're important. Benita, let me, right. let me just Angela. Oh, I'm fine. So, go no, go ahead, Mr. Hannon, and then I'm going to ask Angela a question. Okay. So let me just say this about the, the therapy, because I don't want, I want to put this out there because there's such a, a stigma associated with therapy. Whenever the people that's out here listening to this and the people that see it later on, that therapy is, is, is healing. It's healing. So once we get past, once the, the abuse gets past the physical healing they've done, they need, to, they need to heal their mind. They need to heal their soul. So the therapy is not just, you know, you go into a therapist or you go into a psychologist to sort out your problems. It's actually a deprogramming, a deprogramming from all the manipulation that you've suffered from that abuser. So whenever you go to a therapist, you're actually just compressing all the feelings that you've had, all the all the, the mental torture that you've been through in the years and the months that you've been been with that abuser. So you it does it does take that. So when we talk about therapy, it is therapy of the mind, but it's healing of the mind too. And when we talk about therapy and and, and healing from it. We'll also talk about healing in your soul. So whenever you go to a church member and you're out of that situation and you tell them what you've been through and you find a good church home or you find a good pastor or you find someone in church that you can relate to and talk to and stuff like that, it's healing for your soul. So you want to heal your soul too. It's all over healing. That's what's actually needs so you don't have to go back or you don't feel that you have to go back to that same relationship or that same type of person that's in that relationship. 
And I do agree, um, Mr. Hennett, you know, healing is important um, and healing your soul is majorly important. Um, Angela, so I'm going to give you guys like a, um, a short of Angela's story, but Angela um, lost her son through um, a partner. He killed her son. Um and she had to go through where they was pointing fingers at her and him, you know, as if she knew what had happened. You know, um, short story, short story, short. She had went to work and, you know, came home and um, tired and he killed her. He killed her son. So when she realized she called 911 and, you know, went through the whole, you know, the, the whole thing at answering questions. So, Angela, um. And 21 years of um, of keeping it silent and um, and not saying much of anything, and then you know you're blessed with two more sons. Um, how do you talk to them when they ask questions? about where is their oldest brother and they ask you well what happened to him are you um, honest with them or how do you talk to them about that since they're since both of them are now at the age of 10 and 4 my 10 year old he often asks questions and i'll just tell him that he's not old enough for me to talk to him, to tell him, but I do realize that he's getting older. So I'll have to explain to him what happened as far as me losing his big brother, who would be 23 right now if he was here and everything. And the crazy part is my youngest looks just like my son. And so I know that eventually I'm going to have to talk to them because I wouldn't want them to have to hear it from someone else who really doesn't know the story of what happened to me. And my question, the reason I ask you this, because um, a lot of children are virtual um, now and um, everything is on the internet. Um, so, um, as Talisha, you know, people didn't find out her story until it was put in the newspaper, you know, and, you know, on the Internet. So um, what happens if your oldest son comes across this on the Internet? What do you say to him? If he comes across it on the internet and begins to ask me questions, then I'm just going to have to tell him the truth and not lie to him. And I'm going to have to tell him, you know, what happened to his brother and explain the importance of not being someone who would abuse a woman or do anything to put another person's child in harm's way because some people they sweep it under the rug and they don't want to talk about it but because my 10 year old asks a lot of questions and he asks out of concern and stuff i know that i would have to just explain it to him in a way that he will understand it
Talisha, my question to you is the same. Um, what do you do um, in your situation if it's on the internet and one of your children get a hold of this information? How, how do you talk to them and explain to them what happened and um, Um, for me, um, so how do you explain to them and talk to them um, about it? Well, and I know that's a possibility and not even that with other people knowing as well, um, outside of the internet, I think for me, you know, I'm kind of in a similar situation as she is. My kids are still, you know, nine, he's nine right now, the baby. Um, and then my teenager, she, she's, um, 13. So you know, they kind of starting to ask questions. In my case, because he was so little, he also blinded him in one eye and did some other things to him. And, you know, sometimes he asks questions why he can't see out of that eye. So that's the kind of questions I've been dealing with with them right now. But if they come across the internet, um, uh, you know, I'll be honest with them. I believe in keeping the door open just to let him know that, you know, in a childlike way that, you know, he wasn't a good person that he did a lot of bad things to us. And then, you know, I explained it later. He has asked me before um, about why he can't see. And I try to make it child friendly right now, but as they get older and they, I, I agree that we shouldn't wait until they see it online or somebody else tells them um, because, you know, it's you should be able to have that open line of communication with your children to let them know, you know, just what you've been through and what they've been through. And so I would wait, um, until he get a few years older where he understands. But to me, that's kind of heavy on a child at, at his age right now. But if he asked me, I will, I will tell him in, in my own way that we'll have to wait a little bit before I tell you the whole story, but just know that you're okay and that, that you're safe. And that's how I would approach it. And you know, I've, I've had family members to try and explain to my 10 year old and I'm like, when he asked me questions, I'm like, they don't know what they're talking about. So don't listen to it. All right, so, um, and I asked these questions, you know, and this is at this round table bring awareness and I want people to understand um, the reason advocacy is so important to to us is because it's personal. Some people are actually um, some people are actually okay guys I had some people are actually passionate about it because they don't want to hear others um, go through what they've seen someone else go through. And so um, my question to you, a lot of times people will say how you didn't know that he abused or how you didn't know that she was abusive. Can anybody explain to me what abuse, um, what an abuser looked like? Because those are questions that we really get. Mm -hmm. Anybody can elaborate. Um, I was an abuser, and we sometimes don't know what an abuser looks like. I'm sorry, Angela. I was an abuser, ahead, and um, this was before I was this thick and beautiful as I am right now. I was way smaller, and I was an abuser because that's what I saw growing up. So, 
um, a lot of people, abuser looks like anything, anybody. There is no particular look. Um, and I think that's a lot of times the, the misconception and how it can continue. Because you look at somebody and you'll say, it's just no way. This person is too small or this person is too, too overweight. But that also means that could also be because we also only look at abuse in a physical aspect. Emotional abuse, you don't have to look or, uh, or act a certain way. It's no such thing as the type of abuse that goes to a type of person. Anybody has the ability to abu be abusive. It doesn't look a certain way. So we have to get that image out of our heads. That's yes, absolutely. And people have this idea that it 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 it's a, a certain social status, or that, and it it doesn't it it doesn't discriminate at all. It doesn't. It's all if there's no certain race, there's no certain education status, there's no certain um, social status. It's it's anywhere, everywhere. Um, it doesn't matter what you're you're single, married, if you're. You can't what your sexual preferences, domestic violence is it's non-discriminatory everywhere, period. I mean, it doesn't there is no specific person. I mean, it's I hate when people think that it's it's just not it's anywhere and everywhere. Your next door neighbor, one in one in two point eight five women and one in four men guarantees someone on your street, someone on your block is a victim of domestic violence. I'll say I'll say that we and yeah people just I'll say that when we're looking at uh the the abuser we shouldn't look at what an abuser looks like we should look at what the signs of abuse looks like so you could be a male female black white green yellow it's not what they look like it's what the signs of abuse and domestic violence look like that that a person needs to look for. And in my, Hannah, in my case, you're the only male. My abuser didn't, didn't show anything. Mr. Hennett, um, a question for you since you're the only male on this panel. Um, I hear all the time you um, with men and their egos. How can a man allow a woman to abuse him? And what will be your um, what will be your input on that? Well, uh, as a male, um, uh, <laughs> thinking on my personal experience, I was always raised never to hit a woman. So. That's always ingrained and inbred in me to never never put hands on a woman. But in, when you're in a relationship, when you're dating someone, that person that you're you're dating may not have the same uh, upbringing as you uh, that you had. So they may have been in an upbringing where people fight or it's been known to fight a lot. So as a man, like I said, I I was known just not to hit women. So to be abused is kind of easy for as a, as a male when you're when you're educated and you're uh, taught not to hit someone else or not to be violent, but you can also become a victim of violence. So that's how it looks like from a male standpoint. Standpoint as someone who can be abused, as someone who or someone who might be abused. Okay. 
Right. And to, um, so I'm back off of Mr. Hitt, I was going to say too, like for me, when I was violent with my uh, first and my my first husband, and even this one, um, because um, of their mindset, they were actually turned on by it, and we would, you know, I got six kids, so we would enjoy life, but um, they were turned on by it. But that's also because they had been damaged, and they needed to get themselves together as well. Exactly. Um, so I'm going to read some of the comments from some of our viewers and um, anyone can elaborate. Um, they have some really, really, really good points here. And so and this is what we're doing. Um, everybody has a chance to um, chime in. Um, Latoya says children need to learn early about abuse in a way that they can understand and instill in them messages of hope love and understanding of who God is. Parents need to get ahead uh, of other people and the media. So um, I thought about, you know, just making sure your children are aware of what abuse is, um, anything that they can find on the internet. Once it's there, it's there. Um, educate. We can't, all, you know, we, we do what we can to micromanage and you know to um set um barriers for our children but the worst thing is when somebody else paint the picture of what happened in your home to your children so let's just make sure we have good communication um with our children and that in them as well um, one of the things I've learned with domestic violence is for them to have an awareness for it, it needs to be talked about. Um, our teenagers, they have Teen Dating Awareness Month, which is in February. So it has to be an uproar of incidents happening with our teens. And so we need to begin educating them a level that they understand what it is. Because if not, if they seen it at all, and we tell them that it's wrong, they may think it's okay. And sometimes as moms, when we go through things and uh, we have the strength to get through it, the children sometimes think it's okay because they see mom go through it or, you know, they see dad go through it. So do anybody want to... I do. And one of the things I think we send our kids to school and our kids are taught sex education by our school system. Nowhere during sex education do they teach our children about healthy relationships. We need to, as parents, make sure. I mean, our, our school system is teaching our children about that subject, but they don't teach our children, hey, if you're going to teach our children about sex education as parents, we need to make sure we teach our children about red flags, healthy boundaries, setting healthy boundaries and healthy relationships. I know that I didn't know what a red flag was. I got into a domestic violence relationship in my late 30s and every red flag was there. and I didn't know what they were. I had no idea. We we must educate our children. If we're going to teach them about sex, sex education, teach them about setting boundaries, healthy relationships, those all go hand in hand. 
We allow our school system to teach them about sex education. We allow them to take God and prayer out of school, but we don't teach about healthy boundaries and proper, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, I get frustrated over that. And then we wonder why our kids are having the problems that they're having. If you want to stop domestic violence, we got to teach them the core values of a good relationship, healthy boundaries, and what's the right. When a little boy hits a kid, a little girl at school or picks on him, we say, oh, it's because he likes you. We got to stop telling little girls that. That's not a good thing. And that's one of my issues. Um, and then we're going to go to you, Mr. Hennett. Um, I have grand um, grandsons and I things I do not allow them to do. One, I don't allow them to play with guns. And two, I do not allow them to hit girls. I teach my grandchildren now, my grandsons now, your hands do not on a female at all. Um, if it got to result to where you want to hit, separate yourself from that situation. Because if I don't teach them now and they think it's okay, older she hits they gonna hit her back you know so even at the ages of five three and six months i teach them no i don't allow them to play with guns in my house because if they start playing with play guns they're gonna want a real gun eventually um, and until they're educated on the purpose of a gun and old enough to register a gun, they don't need to know about it right now. That's just my personal belief. But uh, <clears throat> that's just how I teach mine. You know, Mr. Hennett? Yes. I want to say thank you, Sheila, for that. Uh, I totally agree with what you said. And it's it's been a thought uh, that I've been thinking about as well as, as, as putting – um, domestic violence or either having uh, if they're going to teach sex education, they should teach about unhealthy relationships or toxic relationships. Uh, if you're taking if you're teaching about sex education and sexual relations, that is a relationship. And if they they have no example of a good relationship and their example of, a, of a, what a relationship is, is a domestic violence relationship. You're sending them in the world with that example. So as as a parent, it's a twofold. As a parent, they're not getting the, they're not getting the education from their parents. And as a school system, they're not getting the education from the school system as well, because as a school system, we're not teaching them what a good and healthy relationship is. We're teaching them parts of a relationship, which is sex education, which we're trying to prevent, you know, um, teenage births. But that can also come out from a domestic violence relationship. So, I mean, we're not we're 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 doing them a, a, a disservice by not teaching them what a healthy relationship is and the signs of a toxic relationship. So getting that, you know, getting the school system to be involved in that is paradigm. They have to, because now relationships are starting earlier than when I was in high school and stuff like that. Some, I, I had an advocate that had, that told me that she had to go to a middle school and talk to a sixth grader about being in the best of violence relationship. Okay. 
Vernita, one of the um, um, comments from Ms. Hill said, my oh, support. Work? We, um, <clears throat> Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, she said, also, when you asked the question about um, do we have a support system earlier, she said, old support system is usually part of the problem. That was the first step, uh, the first part of her comment. And I was just thinking how important that is. Um, when I was going through my issues, I had a support system, but the support system I had in, in, in action were, um, I want to say, destructive to my being. Instead of saying, listen, you need to get help, you need to stop doing this, it was more of, and then what you do, and then what he say, and then what happened. It wasn't encouraging at all. We have to realize that our support system is a reflection of us. Most our support system is more than likely going to be broken. We definitely want to establish a healthy support system so that we can have a healthy relationship, not just with ourselves, but with our children and with um, with society as a whole. Also, once I started getting therapy, I realized that I, know I realized that I had some mental illness and it stemmed back from my childhood, which was actually um, making me become the person that I was at that point in time. Um, I think mental illness, uh, depression, suicide, I think all of that plays a role, not just in the a person who's being abused life, but also the abuser. And I think that we also need to just stop part of stopping this. It's also addressing the abuser because um, a lot of people weren't born to be, you know, they weren't born abusive. Something has happened. And to, for us to stop that, we have to get them help as well. And jail is not going to help them. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, and right before I go into a discussion about that, um, and I'm glad you brought that up, Cece, Miss um, Hill stated, said, we learn, we change. Parents make mistakes. Parents can um, amend their mentalities to teach children healthy boundaries. Um, mindfulness training is extraordinary for kids. And also agree with Latoya when she said schools should not be solely responsible for teaching our children um, any subject. <coughs> it's always, you know, we should, you know, we should most the learning should come from home, and then what they teach is an extension to what we have already taught them. So, um, and I can say that with being an educator, you know. Um, when I look at the children that I teach on a daily basis and some of the things that they'll come and say to me and, you know, when you got children that can twerk but can't spell their name, hmm. you know, it's some issues there. We should be teaching them more, you know, because the more we teach them and the more we embed in them, nobody can come along and just take that stuff away. You know, but we have a responsibility too. And as parents, we should be able to mob, you know, be, um, um, we should be our children heroes. We should be able to, um, our behaviors in front of them is very important. If we only show abusive, um, behaviors in front of our children 
when they go out, that's how they're going to express themselves. So we have a responsibility as well. And one thing that I like that Cece said is um, we're always talking about what we can do for the survivors, for the abusers who needs help, but all doors are closed because we're just helping the survivors. Okay. I can't read it. I can't see it. Mm-mm. Yes, exactly. So again, for me, um, watching my parents fight each other, and then you know, I became a victim of both of them. Um, I became a fighter. Now, I, I won't say that I just knocked him upside his head. He would do. He would press my trigger. Said he knew I things that would set me off. Um, like getting in my my personal space when he was angry was something that would just you know, it, because of my past. And so going through therapy, um, I learned, first of all, what my triggers are. I learned I needed to change my support system. I learned, um, and you know what, to be honest, realizing that he was part of my problem because I wasn't as a whole a violent person, but I realized that he as, him, he as a whole person was my trigger. And so I realized that he needed to go. I think a lot of times we don't think about the abuser because we paint them in this horrible light. But for me, I was abused. I was just repeating what I had come to know. And um, then I realized too, because I do think mental mental health plays a part in it. Um, because I was abused as a young person, I was I've tried to commit suicide. I even now I suffer from depression, um, anxiety, things like this. That's why again, why I say it goes all hand in hand. Now, thankfully, due to therapy, I've learned how to cope with those things. And um, me and my current husband, we went to go to therapy because we knew we had some issues. He had witnessed violence from his parents, as I had witnessed it from mine. And so we decided to go together to figure out how we could work this out. And we got to know a lot of different things about each other's past that we didn't realize. Um, So I would never say an abuser can't. Um, change because then that means I'll still be stuck in my past. But what I will say is that we need more things in place to help these abusers, first of all, feel comfortable enough to talk about what's going on with them. We need to educate them on how to use coping skills instead of uh, physical or verbal abuse. And we need to figure out um, how we can also help them without going to jail, without them going to jail. When I was doing my... um, volunteer work or, or training for um, Durham Crisis Response Center, I had asked that, like, do, is there something in place for the aggressor? And it's really not anything in place. A lot of times people who are aggressors are low-income family because of stress. If, and if they have the money, they can take a course, but the, the court doesn't automatically pay for it. So if you don't have the money, how are you going to get the help to become stop becoming a violent person in the long run? It's very, very hard. You know what, Cece, I'm, I'm, I used to actually work for North Carolina Department of Corrections. I worked in a men's prison in North Carolina. And um, so I worked in a medium security facility. And and I can tell you that they they do absolutely nothing to rehabilitate inmates. Um, so in that aspect, I can tell you, although the, my abuser was sent to prison, um, so do I believe he needed to go there? Absolutely. The things that he did were absolutely horrendous. And that is where he needed to go. 
Do I think that they rehabilitated him while it, that he, he had any kind of rehabilitation while he was there? No. <laughs> Do any of them really receive any re rehabilitation? I was there for four years and I promise you I did. I saw nothing of the kind while I worked there and the majority of them walk out worse than when they came in. Um, so that's another aspect that needs to be looked at. That's um, so true. And I'm using air quotes, programs, but they're not real programs. So yeah, um, I was yeah. amazed that I had learned that it was no help for them. And I know a lot of I wanted help. You know what I mean? I didn't want to go to jail. I craved help and just did not know where to turn. And I feel like um abuse a lot of abusers are like that. They just don't know what to do, they don't have the money, they don't have the resources. And if you don't um, have the uh, help that you need, how are you going to stop the situation? You're not. It's going to be a repeat cycle no matter how much somebody wants to stop it. If they don't know how to, what can they do? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a vicious cycle. I mean, I think that I mean, when you when you commit a violent crime, I think that you have to you have to pay. You have to suffer the repercussions for it. But in the same aspect, if we send them there and there's never any kind of real re rehabilitation, then they're just the recidivism rate is like 75 percent. You know, I think no matter what, while they're in there, I think no matter what the crime is. Well, I mean, there's some that I think they should never walk free from. But um, uh, child molestation, I think they should never be allowed to be back among us. That's my personal opinion. Um, and what, what I witnessed while working there, I don't think they should ever be allowed out. But um, if there's not help for them while they're in there, some kind of legitimate therapy, therapeutic therapy, then they're just doomed to keep repeating the cycle. So they do. There aren't there aren't. Let me put it like this. There aren't that many um, support groups or therapy groups or rehab programs for abusers. Um, my personal, my personal uh, belief is not that an abuser can't rehabilitate from that 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 uh, abuse, but they can't rehabilitate in that same relationship. So they have to get out of that relationship in order to rehab or rehabilitate. Because as as the abuse is, they may hear the stuff all the time. Well, I'm gonna change. I'm gonna turn around, and then they become back into that that. That keeps them in that same cycle. So I don't personally believe that they can re be uh, rehab within that relationship. Now, I'll say this too that, and I don't, I don't want to put it put it that makes it sounds like uh, there's a reason for abuse because there is no reason for abuse. But a lot of abusers they do suffer from some some uh, trauma that they went through personally of their own. Um, like I said, not to say that there's a reason for the abuse, but if you don't ever, ever treat the reason why they abuse, then they're going to continue to re, uh, abuse someone else. They're going to try to abuse the same person that they abused before, or they may go out and get another relationship where they abuse because abusers also tend to pick the same kind of person. They also take the typically uh, pick the same kind of woman to abuse or pers person to abuse. So if you don't treat the fact why they abuse that person or have them rehab or rehabil re rehabilitate, then they're just going to keep doing that. Or the fact that they just sit in jail and just sit there and fester on the fact that that person that sent them to jail is still out there. That They're the reason 
that they're in jail, not because of them, but the person that they abused sent them to jail. So we're still we're still putting that person back in danger. Mr. Hanna, I do agree with you. Um, one thing, I'm reading the comments as well as we talk, and Ms. Hill stated, um, um, legal industry chooses to avoid implementing prevention models. Rehabilitation can work, complex trauma. And it's true, if we look at it, the prison system is set up to make money. The court system is set up to make money. Um, the whole judicial system technically is set up to make money, but um, seeing um, seeing that there is a need and there is a a need for programs not just for survivors but programs for abusers, you know, as advocates. We can put some things together, you know, we have to send it through the Senate, we have to send it through, you know, doing whatever we need to do, but um, thinking about it, and even when I think about, you know, um, my abusers, not just abuser, but abusers, um, you know, um, if we can get some type of prevention you know, set out. I would never want to just see them in and out of prison or in and out of jail. But as you all stated, they need to be treated as well. Um, and just knowing that, um, just that as survivors, we have a support system. But um, if we care about our community, you know, and I'm a strong advocate, but if we care about our community and we want to make our community safer, we need prevention. And with that prevention, we need to um, figure out programs and get things passed, you know, um, to help the abusers, not where they just go to a anger management class that they probably don't pay attention to because I've said in court and I've seen them say, well, you know, yeah, he needs to go to anger management or she, they get nothing out of it. They come right back out. If you pull up the um, Department of Corrections, um, you know, if if you let up and you, you pull up an abuser name, you see assault on a female this day, assault on a female this day. But if you go back and you look and they say, well, I had anger management. Do you think it helped? No, because we hadn't really gotten to the deep issue that's within them. A lot of times um, abusers abuse because of what they've seen. And because of what they've been through as well, you know, if we can be honest about this situation. So, um, and a lot of times when you're in a relationship and you get deep into that relationship, you know, they tell you, things, you know, I often say it's pillow talk. They tell you some things that may, when they trust you to an extent, they may tell you, well, this has happened in my past. 
but they've never seen any type of therapy or help. You know, so what do we do as advocates? Do we continue to just help the survivors or do we figure out legal terms and legal ways to put programs together to not just help the survivors, but to help the abusers as well? But one thing that I do have to, I mean, I got to say out loud is abusers can control, they at least my ex-husband could. He was the choir boy in public 90% of the time. Everybody thought he was such a nice guy. Very rarely did he show anger in public. So he could control himself. But behind closed doors, he was Satan. So he did know to control. So it wasn't like he couldn't control his anger. He could control, control it just fine in public. But behind closed doors, he didn't have to control it at all. So his, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about everybody else's, but his, his anger, um, I mean, towards other people, I mean, he didn't have outbursts when other people, you know, like when we got into a car accident he got out like a perfect gentleman, if someone hit our vehicle, but behind closed doors, I mean, if I made something, one of his children didn't like for breakfast, it was nothing for my arm to get ripped out of socket and me to get punched in the stomach 15 times. Um, or get whipped with an extension cord across my back and legs. I mean, he was extremely abusive behind closed doors, but an angel out in public. So he could control himself. He's perfectly capable or was perfectly capable of controlling himself. And I mean, he's out walking the streets in North Carolina now, and I'm sure everybody thinks he's this wonderful person. Um, so I don't think he's, for me anyway, to him, I don't think rehabilitation would do him any good. Because I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't think his has anything to do with childhood trauma. I think he's just like a, I really believe that he is like a psychopath. And I'm, that's just being completely honest. He doesn't look at you or any other human being any different than he does a, a, a bottle or a rock. Um, I've seen him do things that are just reprehensible. I think that we should um, address the abusers. I think they do need help. Like for um for me, I was the same way, Sheila, as your ex-husband. Like I could control because I didn't need the whole world to see who I was when I was angry. I think we put on a I think in some kind of way all of us put on a mask in the public eye than we do at our own house, the, the comfort of our own homes. At home, though, I could still be sweet, but if he crossed me the wrong way or touched my uh triggers then it was going to be all hell and I didn't care who, who was around in my home because I, I would show my behind in my home if you were in my home. I just didn't care. So, But I didn't want to be that way. And I know some people, it sounds like your ex-husband kind of loved it, like he, he relished in it. But <laughs> a lot of us, we don't want to be that way. I hated myself every time. As a matter of fact, I legitimately cry just about every time I did it because I did not want to be that person. I did not want to be my parents. And so I just, at that point, I just didn't know what to do. And like Mr. Henry said, he was actually a whole trigger for me. Um, and, and once I did relieve that relationship, I did become abusive with my current husband, but that um, that was a little different between me and him. Um, but once I left that relationship and got therapy, I was able to see clearly what my issues were. Um, and so that's what, again, like you said, uh, Vernita, 
we when they go to classes, when the abusers go to classes, is anger management. What does that mean? They need coping skills. They need to know what their triggers are. They need a recovery plan. They need all these other things that um, could help them address, you know what, why am I this way? And I don't want to be. They need more things in place to help them cope and help them learn how to communicate other than verbally abusive or with their fists. I would say it's a it's 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 a toss up when we're talking about treating abusers and it, not to say that it's a toss up, but you got to think of the personality um, that that goes into an abuser. For uh, a lot of abusers, they are about manipulation, so they know how to manipulate the system. They know how to manipulate their abuser. They know how to manipulate the the public. They will seem just like uh, Sheila said, as someone who's a choir boy, you know. But behind closed doors, they're 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 a monster. They're a monster. Um, I would I would lean in the, into the the aspect that they're more sociopaths, and you have to also think about too what kind of personality they have. They have a narcissistic personality. So whenever we're treating, whenever we talk about treating it, you treat those those aspects of it. The fact that they're they manipulate people, that they're narcissistic, they're sociopaths, and they're abusive. Mm-hmm. And also, too, it's also when we're when we're talking about treating them, it's not to give them a punishment, but to hold them accountable for what they've done. They never, as a as an abuser, they never feel like this is their fault. That that the reason why I'm in this situation is not because of me. It's because of the person. But on a, you are in this situation because of you. You are an abuser. You are someone who abused someone or, or or physically hurt someone. So if you if you're gonna treat them, treat that part of it where you hold them accountable and make sure that they know that this is you. You did this to yourself, not the person that you abused. And I would like to piggyback off of that myself because I know the main thing is acknowledging what you've done. Uh, my ex, you know, he never acknowledged what he did. In fact, mm-hmm. he was huge in, in the church, choir boy. He was uh, had a lot of people fooled, you know, even to the point where the church half the church sided with him after he was arrested to try to help him and assist him. And that's how big of a manipulator he really was. Um, they would actually side with him and you know, he was trying to say I was the problem. And even though they have proved that he was the abuser. So first you got to acknowledge that you have an issue and they got to want to have the help. I know for him, he never went to prison because he actually ran. Once he was arrested, he had people assist him to get out and actually run back to where he's from. So you got to want the help first. Um, And I think a lot of times he just kind of put it off on other people and never really wanted to acknowledge that he had done this. And to this day, he still doesn't acknowledge that he done. It's always somebody else's fault. So, you know, and I do believe he was abused as a child and he had some prior issues growing up. And so, you know, you just got to continue to watch that and your children and the people, you know, that that generational curse doesn't continue. Um, And so, but I just feel like that they got to want to get the help. And I think I want to just kind of share that because I know he never gave account. He never went to jail for it. And, you know, he, he you know, I wish he could have paid to try to figure that out. Um, but you can't 
make people want to help and they got to know what they did wasn't right. I completely agree. I think too. Right. So therapy, my therapist, I was telling her how my husband kept cheating on me and cheating on me and cheating on me. And what she said to me was, what, what, at what time did you come become complacent to it? I got upset. Like, I don't understand. How was I, you know why she said that? It's because I allowed it to keep happening. You allow it to keep happening. It does become your fault with my you know what? When I saw that he had crossed my boundaries, knowing my past, why did I stay? And I mean, I know why, but I should have left because I didn't realize anybody who knows your past and knows um, what sets you off and what bothers you, but they do it anyway, is definitely a person that's too toxic to be around. And so I had to take accountability for my actions for even allowing it to get that far, becoming somebody I didn't want to be. So let's, um, guys, this has been really, really awesome. I'm going to read a couple of the comments. Miss um, Hill said, anger management teaches convert abuse. Miss um, Johnson says the first step to repentance is to acknowledge that they have a problem and they want help. And as we know, some abusers, you know, uh, want help when they get to that state that they want help. You know, there should be something out. One thing that I like that Miss Hennett said, we need to um, change, you know, some things that because no matter what programs they have in place for survivors as well, we all know that some of the programs still do not work. Um, there is a, um, what's his name? Mr. Don Estes is working on. You know, they're giving them a hard time about having a street for um, domestic violence um, abusers. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know about you guys, but oftentimes when getting involved with people, I do pull what I can to see what type of person I am dealing with. So, um, you know, and but I do feel that if we had a registry like we have a... Um, uh, you know, if you abuse a dog, there's a registry for that. If you've um single crime, there's a registry for that. So those who have committed domestic violence, why can't we have a registry for that? Ms. Tennant also said, we do. We need to you know, everybody forgetting what organization they're representing and think about the lives that we can save you know, and getting together to pull together to get laws together so we can have stronger domestic violence um, laws in place. So, you know, they're very, very, very important. Um, I also want to encourage anyone that's w watching this that's going through a domestic violence situation. I want you to know no matter how much your manipulator, your abuser tell you fault, that he or she does these things to you, it is never your fault. Um, you know, we we can um, we can educate all day, but if we don't encourage them, you know, to um, find a safety place, and to be honest, you know, we'll say, you know, tell somebody that you trust, 
And a lot of times their family and their family will stab them in the back. You know, not realizing that the person they are trying to get away from is not the person, as many of you stated, that they see. You know, that person looked like they're loving. That person looked like they're kind. That person looked like they're fun. That person, you know, play a role of being um, this role in, you know, church or this role, or, you know. Oh, this person look like they have it together. And as we're stated, you know, throughout this uh, round table, um, an abuser can look like anyone. And a lot of times, you know, when we go in different things like that, that we have a round table coming about is because those that spiritually abusing you are your leaders. Um, those that are abusing you in your home is the person that should be the head of your household. So a manipulator has a way of manipulating the people around them to look a different way. As a survivor, we're wearing a mask on um, who we are today. For me, you know, um, I often say when I tell my story, you know, if you see me, a lot of times you'll see me with my makeup and stuff on and um, Back in the days when I was going through, I needed it to hide the scars to make me feel beautiful. But I want to say to any um, any woman out there, you're beautiful just the way you are. Any male that's out there, you're handsome just the way you are. You have for up yourself feel this way because of the person you with. Get yourself get get together reach out to any of the groups any of these people so we can find you a safe you know we can develop a safety place for you a safety um plan to help you get out of it so is there anything that any of you want to say to anyone that's watching that may be going through um domestic violence they're on the last leg they're thinking about um committing suicide they're depressed you know, they're thinking about, um, I can't leave because financially he has a hold on me or financially she has a hold on me. What do you say then? Let me tell We're you. We're going to tell you to Miss Sheila, then Cece, then Talisha, then Angela. Who's starting? Mommy. Mr. Hennett. Oh, Okay. So, um, Mr. Hannon, oh, okay. now hold on, see something to say. Okay, so what I would like to say is that to anyone that's going through a domestic violence situation, there is help. Um, there is help out there. Um, find you a support group. Um, you've been in this type of relationship. Uh, does won't do you any good. Um, it only this domestic violence only escalates. And when we talk about escalation, I know you see, I know that you see red signs or red flags of, you know, uh, 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 property damage. It may not have gotten to the physical form yet, but it's it's going to get there. It's going to get worse. Um, but there's help out here for you. Um, there's people that care about you. There's people that love that love you. And it's not just people on this panel. Um, 
it's probably some people that's within your circle, a best friend, a cousin, your parents, your children. So when when your abuser tells that you're you're not going to find anybody else, that you're not that you're not going to get out of this situation, that you can't do any better than you already have, it's a lie. It's a lie, and it's it's yeah. something that's going to keep. It's something that's used to keep you there, because he wants you to be there. He wants you to be there because there's something wrong with him. There's something wrong with the abuser that he wants to keep you in that type of relationship. He wants to keep you in a in a pattern of in a holding pattern of control and abuse. So when you get out, just think about this: is that what's your options? Your options are is that you can live, you can live better, you can just live and be free without all the things that 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 you went through in this relationship. Am I up next? <laughs> um, if you're in a toxic or an abusive relationship, get out. Um, don't let it get to the point. I literally almost lost my life on July 4th, 2014. I call it my personal independence day. And I, it's been over six years now. And I tell everybody um, six years later, um, I'm in, I'm in a, I'm a beautiful place now. I'm in a, a, I'm remarried to a wonderful, loving, supportive, kind man that's never said, he's never even raised his voice to me because I learned what red flags are and I learned what a healthy relationship is and I learned to love myself. Um, I would not trade anything for where I am right now. I'm surrounded by amazing women. Um, it's a rough road. It's a rough road getting out. I had to relocate states reach out. There's amazing people out there that are going to be there with you every step of the way. It's not an easy road, but it's a road that's that rough road that you're going to travel. It's worth it. I look at my life now and I tell everybody I would do that journey all over again if I knew where I would be today. There's people out there. There's survivors that will help you. There's agencies. There's advocacy groups that are going to be there to hold your hand not going to tell you it's going to be easy. You're going to walk out the door and the next day you're going to be, wow, my life is great. That's not how it works. But six months, a year later, after you're through everything, your life will be better. It's going to be nice to come home and not have to walk on eggshells, not have to worry about um, saying I'm sorry 500 times a day to have freedom and to look at your children and know that they're going to have a better life and that you've broken the cycle. Please save yourself. Get out. Reach out to whoever. Reach out to me. Reach out to Vernetta. Reach out to anybody on this panel. Call the National Domestic Hotline. Get out. Just please get out. Uh, what I want to say is make a plan. Um, I never tell anybody I talk to when I'm doing my volunteer work or even um, focus on being a uh, my regular job. I now never tell anybody just to get up and go. I never tell them just to make a move right then and there because I don't know what your battle is. I know what my battle was. I might not necessarily understand your battle and it's not my place to tell you what your battle should be or to tell you what I did. What I'm here for is to tell you to come up with a plan, an exit strategy. Um, also, I want to say that you need to tell your family and friends what's going on. Um, 
in, in making those moves because they could be your very most supportive person. They might have extra funds to put to the side for you, an extra room. They may know a landlord who will work with you. So you definitely want to let those you, who you trust in your circle know what's going on. So once you leave that person, you need to block them and their friends from contacting you on social media. Social media is the go-to to become a social media bully. And so you want to delete, block those people um, off of your social, off of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and whatever else you may use, because that's another way for them to get to you. So just um, look for the resources that you need, be honest with your family and friends, and make an exit plan. I would like to say that um, you're worth more. You know, you don't have to stay where you're at. Um, a lot of times you feel like you're stuck in a situation that you can't get out. In my case, you know, he said, I'm going to kill you before you get out. Or even, you know, financially, you don't know how you're going to make it when you get out. But I just want to let you know that you're worth more. Your kids are worth more. You deserve to come out of that situation because there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that a lot of times we, you know, we're made to feel like we don't know what we're going to do financially. I know that was my problem. What am I going to do to raise these three kids? How am I going to make it? But most importantly with me was I had faith in God. I had to trust him when I got out that I was going to make it. And I just feel like, you know, women out there, if you're going through, just know that it's people in place that can help you reach out to different people. Like they said before, don't feel like you're alone. Make sure your circle is, is tight. Make sure that people, you know, there's people that really do love and care about you, but you have to not live in silence. You have to open up your mouth and talk to those people. But, you know, I also want to encourage you to, you know, after going through that I'll come out, you know, I really never saw myself starting over and being, because I really never wanted to be married again, but I am engaged to a man that God sent to me as well as, you know, just knowing that there's love at the end that you don't, that just because you're right here doesn't mean that you can't start over in a loving relationship. Um, so just continue to, to to know that you're worth it and that you need to come out of that situation. Don't allow yourself to stay in and to reach out and make sure that your voice is heard. I'm gonna piggyback off of what Talisha just said and know that you are you are worthy. You are you are worth it and that you can come out of domestic violence and that there is help um, where places that you may not even believe that there is help and each each one of us on this panel you can reach out to to get the help that you need and we will definitely direct you to where the help is and also just know like single moms be very careful of who you have your children around so that nothing happens to your child so that you're so that you're not sitting on a front row saying goodbye to your child like I did 21 years ago and just just be very protective but most of all know that you're worthy and that you can start over and that there is help for you <clears throat> so the panel has pretty much told you what you need to do um, there. <clears throat> if you ever find yourself in a situation and you need help, 
You can always go to our website that's been scrolling the whole time. And you can always chat. Um, there will be an agent at all times through my website who can um, get you the help that you need. Um, we also have, um, if you if you go to our organization page, all our contact information is there. Um, it's not about what organization um, and no matter where you are, we are connected with people all across the United States to get you the help that you need. If you are a mother or a sister and you are a father, whomever, a friend and you are enabling an abuser you are part of the problem yeah. let's get it together let's save our men let's save our women yeah. let's save our children um i have i have learned a lot today on this panel um there's so much more i thank you all for joining us um our team and be careful around your children. Be careful who you allow in your circle. Always go through and make sure that um, if there are signs there, walk away before getting involved. Make sure that you're safe at all times. Once you go through domestic violence, your life changes tremendously. You have to change your life to possibly keep your life. And that is a very true statement. Um, if you're going through, develop a safety So we help you to make a life changing decision. Domestic violence is real. It is happening each and every day. If you check your, um, whatever your state is, Coalition Against Domestic Violence, you will see how many murder suicides have taken place in the state of North Carolina? We have had, um, that's how I checked 69. With the pandemic here, people are stuck in a home with people that they used to have a break from. So, um, we have seen a rise in the numbers. Don't say that this is not happening in your community because it's happening in your community. But we will be having another session on November the 8th um, from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Please tune in. We have, um, we will be going over the same topics. And if you have any questions that you want to ask, this panel will pay attention to the post. You have to do is comment and um, ask your questions. You can inbox any of us and we will respond to you. But as always, guys, this is Bernita Howard and I do thank you all for participating and I thank all our viewers for joining in to, um, to help us spread awareness on such touchy topics. Thank you guys so much. <laughs>